We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, and if you don't, let me invite you to use the Pew Bible that's in your seat or the seat next to you. We are looking at Genesis chapter 6. You can find Genesis chapter 6 on page 4 or page 5, depending on which version of the Pew Bible you're looking at. As you're turning there, let's kind of bring you up to speed. We are in the midst of a new sermon series that we launched with the launch of CPC Kids, in which we're going through the story of the Bible. We're calling it The Story, Genesis to Revelation. And what we're trying to do is really get an overarching view or understanding of what is the story that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to an account that's found in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. And what we see throughout the Bible is that God is an eternal and holy God. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And he acts in human history in a couple of different ways. He acts in lots of different ways, but in primarily two ways as it relates to the story of the Bible. He judges sinners and he rescues sinners from judgment. And so what we see is through the scriptures is that this story of redemption is this story repeated over and over. God judging sin, but at the same time being gracious and merciful and rescuing sinners from judgment. That's the story of human history. And so fallen humanity, sinful human beings experience one of two things. They're either judged in their sin and unrighteousness or they're delivered from the judgment of God. Through salvation in Jesus, in Jesus alone. That is the theme of the story of the Bible. We looked at last week, Genesis chapter 3, how that promise is made all the way back in the beginning. That God would send the Messiah. And he would have his heel bruised, but he would crush the head of our enemy. And so what we've said is that the story of the Bible can be thought of in four different movements or four chapters. And those are creation, the fall, which we looked at last week. Redemption and restoration. Now we looked at Genesis chapter 3 where we see Adam and Eve rebel and disobey God. And what we see is they sin. God judges that sin. What he told to them was that if you sin, if you eat from the knowledge of the, uh, the, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. Now it wasn't an immediate kill over kind of death, but they were cut off from the source of real, true spiritual life. They're driven out of the garden. But what we see is that even in God's judgment, he's gracious and merciful to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Think about what you see in Genesis chapter 3. They eat, they realize that they're naked, they're ashamed, and they hide from God. But God, because he's gracious, he comes and he finds them. They're naked, so he clothes them. We see God initiate the first sacrifice or atonement in which he sacrifices an animal in order to make clothes for their shame and nakedness. He also promises this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We talked about, theologians call this the proto-evangelium. It's the first promise of the gospel. These words are spoken all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and everything flows out of this promise that God makes. These words contain, as you read through it, the entire plan of redemption or the plan of salvation. The great English preacher Charles Simeon, he says that this is the sum 
and the summary of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, you don't see it maybe at first glance, but Jesus, we saw last week, is there in Genesis chapter 3. The ultimate seed of the woman who comes to crush the serpent's head, but in the process is bruised on the cross. So he gains victory, but he suffers injury and is wounded in the process. Charles Wesley, you may be familiar, we sometimes sing some Wesleyan hymns here. He wrote the famous Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But you may not be familiar with one of the verses that's included in the original text that he based on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Most modern, traditional, kind of contemporary arrangements do not include this verse, but it's one of the most sound theologically in the hymn. In which he says, come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. See, Jesus doesn't come just as a cute and cuddly baby that we can look at and go ooh and ah over in the manger. But he comes as a conquering king. He comes as a battling and mighty warrior. One of the first things that happens as he begins his ministry, remember, is he's driven out into the wilderness. He's tempted. He's tempted in the very same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. But the situation is different. They're in a perfect scenario. They have the abundance of God given to them. They could eat of any tree in the garden except for one. And they fail. And they disobey God. And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is driven out to the wilderness for 40 days. And this, the tempter comes to him, and he tempts him to satisfy his physical desires. Remember, he says, you know, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, but man does not live by bread alone, but lives by uh, the word of God. He's tempted in the exact same way, but because he's the conquering warrior, he resists the enemy. He comes to fulfill all the promises that God made in Genesis chapter 3 to reverse all of the destruction that Adam and Eve created in their disobedience. But we don't have to wait all the way to the New Testament to see God's plan of redemption unfolding. We get to see it here in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, it's not as clear maybe always to us, but what we see is that God is judging sin and saving sinners. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9. But before we get there, we just kind of need to kind of cover a little bit. We have Adam and Eve. They're driven out. They have children, brothers, Cain and Abel. And they start out and they look, you know, like they're very similar. They both appear to be very faithful. Cain is a religious person who makes offerings to God. Abel does the exact same way. But Cain ends up in a very different place. He ends up living in a world, rejecting God, and experiencing all kinds of chaos and destruction. John, in 1 John, concludes that Cain was of the wicked one, and his works were evil. So what's the difference between Cain and Abel? Well, the first thing is that Abel brought a blood sacrifice. He brought the first fruits of his flock. And he recognizes that what God began in the garden, this principle that to approach God as sinful human beings, we approach in faith in the atoning sacrifice of a substitute. In the Old Testament, it's the atoning sacrifice of a substitute lamb. Jesus becomes the once and for all sacrifice, the lamb of God, who John the Baptist says, takes away the sin of the world. But Abel approaches in faith 
and trust in the grace and the mercy of God that comes to him through this sacrifice. Cain brings an offering of his first fruits, but it really is the first fruits of the ground. And so he fails to recognize that God had cursed the ground in Genesis chapter 3. And instead of bringing something uh, in faith, appealing to the grace and the mercy of God, he comes and he pleads the merits of his own righteousness. He works the ground. He engages with it as a farmer. He tills it. He plants. He waters. And then he takes the efforts of his labors and then presents them to God. Where Abel presents a sacrifice of a substitute, Cain presents the work of his old hands as the means to be accepted into the presence of a holy God. So we see from the very beginning the two ways in which you and I try to approach a holy God. For most of us, until the Holy Spirit comes and reveals the beauty of the gospel that God saves sinners through his grace in the person of Jesus, we try to approach by doing more and being good. And keeping all the rules and following the commandments and not doing the bad things that we're not supposed to. And avoiding those people who do those kinds of things. So that we can then come like Cain does and say, here God, this is what I've done. See how hard I've been working? See how good I've been? This is why you should love me. This is why you should bless me. So it's this kind of divine transaction in which we do our part. And then God does his to bless us. And it works out. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've ever had a situation in your life where you got angry at God because he didn't do something that you thought he should do. He didn't provide for you what you thought he should provide for you. Okay, so I came to faith. I was a freshman in college. I got involved with all kinds of great camp ministries, working with kids fourth through eighth grade. And I did this for a number of years. I did this all throughout college. My final semester of college, I always had this dream or vision for how my life would unfold. I'd meet this wonderful woman. We'd get married, and then we'd move off and start seminary together in this wonderful new chapter of our life. Well, the last semester of college comes, and I don't even have a girlfriend. I don't even have any prospects of a girlfriend. And I got angry. And I would secretly say things. I would never say this out loud because we don't talk like this. But these are the secret things that run on in my heart and my mind. I think they probably run on the yours. God, I've been doing all this stuff. Man, I gave my summers for four years in a row, 16 hours a day, traveling to college campuses for 10 straight weeks. I've been doing these disciple nows and revivals every single weekend. Why don't you come through for me? Why don't you come through for me? See, that's the approach of Cain. This is what I do. This is why you should accept me. This is why you should bless me. This is why you should give me a girlfriend. This is why you should do whatever it is. And it's because I think God's obligated to me because the transaction is based on my performance or my righteousness, not on grace. That's the way Cain approaches God, and he's rejected. Abel makes a substitute, a sacrifice, a bloody offering, and then he burns it, and the sweet aroma goes up to the Lord, and it was acceptable to him. So Abel gives to us this, this picture of what it means to live by faith. To be accepted by God's grace and not by our own achievements. So we have what we see, sin destroying the world, tearing families apart right from the very beginning. And this is going to multiply and increase until we get to Genesis chapter 6. Where we see God now dealing with this issue of evil and wickedness. Judging sinners and rescuing sinners from judgment. So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to stand. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to... Kind of skip through a little 
bit of a chapter beginning in verse 9. Now, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way of the earth. And God said to Noah, I determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits its breadth, 50 cubits its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark inside and make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood upon waters, of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven, and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons, wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, and of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and every creepy thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive, and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. When you think of the judgment of God... What is it that comes to your mind? When you think of judgment of God, what is it that comes to your mind? I imagine you have visions of hell and of the devil running around with a pitchfork and a pointy tail and things like that. Or maybe you would even go so far as to think of hell as separation from God. How many of you ever heard hell as being separation from God? Okay, so... Sometimes we think about that, like an eternity of separation from God. I don't think that's the biblical picture of what hell is. Um, So I want to begin by setting the context of what God's judgment is and our relationship to a God who is holy and who takes sin seriously and will judge it. Every single human being, every single human being that you and I have known, will know, know right now, has a relationship with God. The question is, what is the nature of that relationship? Is he a loving father? For those of us in Christ, that's the relationship that we have. He's a loving father. We don't have to fear him. But for those who are outside of Christ, he is the eternal judge. And he will deal with them in his wisdom the appropriate time. Every single person, the people we love, the strangers around the world, the people who check us out at Walmart and live next door to us, our neighbors. Every single person you see today has a relationship with God. The question is, is it a relationship of a loving father or a judge? What we see in Genesis chapter 6 is that God judges sin. As we make our way through Genesis, we see there is this, this battle, this war between righteousness and God's holiness and his glory and evil. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were given a responsibility to subdue the world, to bring more order out of the chaos, and to do it for the glory of God. When sin enters into the world, we do the exact same things. We're still subduing the world. 
We've made great advancements with technology in this, but now instead of doing it for the glory of God, we do it for the glory of ourselves. So you can read Genesis chapter 6 when it says, you know, that there's evil all over the earth. And you can read it this way. You can say, man, those people were really bad. I'm glad I'm not like them. Or you can read it with a proper, proper biblical perspective. Those people were bad. And then you look in the mirror and you realize the same thing that afflicted them is the exact same thing that afflicts you. It's sin. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is that all of us are sinners. Every single one of us lives in our natural state contrary to the rule and the reign of God in and over our lives. Now, I'm not saying that you're as bad as you could possibly be. See, God is gracious and he restrains evil through what we call common grace. So you're not the worst version of yourself that you could possibly be. Our neighbors who are walking around and who refuse to acknowledge the gospel of Jesus are not the worst versions of themselves as well. Because God shows grace both to the just and the unjust. But sin affects every single aspect of who you are. It it touches every single part of who you are. I'll give you an example. We sometimes do good things motivated by the wrong reasons. Some of you have heard this story before, but we were on staff at a church. What I would consider now a large church. Um, But at that time, I thought it was just kind of a small to maybe medium-sized church. We had our first child, Hattie Margaret. And she, you know, whenever new kids come into the church, just like was with Elliot, everybody's wanting to hold them and love on them and kiss them. And, and so this is what, what I would do. When we were out in public, when we were at a church-wide event or a Sunday mornings, I was real quick if I smelled a dirty diaper or I realized that she needed to be fed. To be, oh, oh, I'll go change her. I'll feed her her bottle. I'll give to her the things that a father and a, a mother are supposed to do. Okay, but at 3 o'clock in the morning, when the baby would start to cry, I'd let Lori get up and deal with those. Do you know why? Here's the reason why. I love my daughter, but there was really no one else there to see it. So there was nothing that I got out of it other than just sacrificially loving and serving my family. I love my family. But at the core of Robbie is this dark hole that wants to suck everything in. I'm selfish. And so even though I was doing good things, because of sin, because of that selfishness, it was motivated by the wrong desires. So that's the way sin works. We're not the most evil versions of ourselves because God is good to us. That's why we'd say, but we see something on a television, uh, you know, a, a murder of a, a parent to a child, something. And we say, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. Because that evil, you have the capacity for. If God were not to restrain it, there is, we can't even begin to imagine the evil that you and I could come up with. Martin Luther, the great father of the Reformation, says, Without the Holy Spirit, without God's grace, you and I can do nothing but sin. And so we go on endlessly from sin to sin. He said, But this knowledge of our sin is the beginning of our salvation. And that we come to completely despair of ourselves and give to God alone the glory for our righteousness that's in Christ. So we see in Genesis chapter 6, God allows humanity to procreate, to multiply, to fill the earth, despite the sin, the murder, the evil, the rebellion that's taken place. And so what we see is there's this whole kind of human society of people who are living contrary to God's rule and reign over their lives. But God continues to bless because he's gracious and merciful and he's patient and long-suffering. 
But this evil escalates. Wickedness escalates. And so we read in Genesis chapter 6 that we have this man, Noah, and he seems to be the only one who is blameless and walking with God. Evil is multiplied and now it's spread through the face, over the face of the earth. The Lord sees the wickedness of a man that was great on the earth, that every intent of his heart was evil only continually. And so he has to respond. Now in Genesis chapter 1, remember, God creates, and there's this wonderful refrain that gets repeated over and over, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And then sin enters the world, and now everything's bad. Everything's bad. What we see is that sin first starts in the heart. It's an internal issue, internal issue. That's why it says he saw the thoughts of his heart. But it's also a pervasive condition. And that I said, it touches every aspect of who we are. And it's continual. Unless someone delivers us from the power and the influence of sin, it will not stop. That's the natural trajectory of every human heart apart from the grace of God. That was the natural trajectory of your heart. That's the natural trajectory of my heart apart from God's spirit at work in us, leading us to repentance. Now, some things that you see in these first few, chapter, first few verses of chapter 6 is that sin expands. It just continually grows unchecked in that old world. But it does not go unnoticed. God sees this evil and intends to respond. He brings judgment And when God brings judgment, he always gives the reason for his judgment. He doesn't just kind of willy-nilly be like, yeah, I didn't like that. Shoot a lightning bolt from heaven. He doesn't, you know, just kind of, you know, have a bad day and then just rain down brimstone and fire on us. When he judges, he's always just. And this is the thing. God is glorified in his judgment. You may not like it. This may be one of the passages you just absolutely hate. But God is sovereign, God is wise, and he doesn't owe an explanation to you. He's glorified in all that he does, even the execution of his judgment. So he begins to tell us in the first few verses why he's going to bring this flood. It's because evil is going unchecked. And so he's going to judge sin. And it's going to be so severe, the, the evil is so severe that the judgment is going to be corresponding in nature. And it's going to flood the whole earth. So the scale of God's judgment shows us the scale of the evil in the world. So God responds. He says there has to be a response, a holy response to the wickedness of sinful humanity. We see that the Spirit of God is mentioned, I believe it's in verse 3. Now the Spirit of God, remember, was present at creation. He brings order out of the chaos. He brings shape and form and function out of a world in order for human beings to inhabit it. Sin enters, death, destruction, and chaos starts to reign and ensue. Now the Holy Spirit is here, not to create the world, but through the flood and the execution of God's judgment in a way to uncreate the world. Decreation is happening in the flood. Everything will be turned upside down, tossed to and fro, Life will be thrown into disorder and chaos. Now, up to this particular point, the Spirit of God has just kind of been working, um, possibly restraining evil at times, convicting people, leading Noah and his family and others who who are going to walk with God. But now, God seems to remove his Spirit in order that his judgment might be executed on every single person. 
What I think this means is in Genesis chapter 6 that in the 120 years that God speaks about when the floodwaters are finally going to come, that God will be just in executing his judgment because he's been patient for a long time, giving people the chance to repent and to turn to him. That's what Second Peter talks about in chapter 3, is that, you know, that God is patient, long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to experience judgment, but he hopes that they'll all turn in repentance to Jesus. But there's a point, there's a point that cannot be crossed. And God will execute his judgment because he is a holy and good and just God. We read that it says, He was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. I will blot out the man whom I am created from the face of the land, from the animals to the creeping things, the birds to the sky. And so God executes judgment, undoes creation through the flood. Think about it, what it means. Okay, how many of you have ever gone into a nursery and seen like Noah's Ark pictures and quilts and stuff hanging on the wall? Okay, that's not the flood. Okay, that's, we, we just have this real problem with the judgment of God. We just we we don't like it. We we live in a society and a culture where you're not allowed. You know, I mean, if you say, Man, you know what, that's just that's not good. That's evil. Judge not, lest you be judged. Didn't Jesus say you're not supposed to judge? Okay, that's the kind of culture and society we live in. It's the idea of a holy and just God who deals with sin. We hate it. We hate it because it forces us to deal with the reality that He has to deal with our sin. That's the reason why I think we hate it most. I think we're okay with God dealing with the sin of other people. But it's when we have to look in the mirror and realize, if he's holy and just, if he's really going to deal with sin, then I will have a day of reckoning. And so God pours out the floodwaters. And people die. And they experience the judgment of God. But God, because he's gracious and merciful, he does this. And includes it in the scriptures so that you and I might be warned, not of just a temporary judgment of a flood, but of the eternal judgment that comes for those who die apart from Christ. Yes, God judges sin. He judges sinners. But we also see in this passage that he's gracious and merciful and he rescues sinners from that judgment. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You could replace that word favor with the word grace. The Hebrew word there literally means grace. I think the King James Version, if you're reading the King James this morning, actually translates it that way. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How does he find grace? Well, God gives him instructions to build an ark. And this ark is going to be the means of his salvation, his family's salvation, and their wives and all the animals that enter into it. And the ark becomes this picture of Jesus. All who entered in, all who go in there in faith, trusting God, when the waters of judgment begin to pour, they're lifted to safety. So Jesus becomes, a, or the ark is a type of Jesus. That's why it's interesting, you know, it says Noah, he did what he was commanded. Well, what are we commanded to do? We're commanded to repent of our sin and put our hope and our trust in Jesus. Man, it must have been crazy. It wasn't raining at that time. I don't know how many of you have maybe seen that movie, Evan Almighty. Um, but it's kind of modern, contemporary telling of the story of Noah, and he's building this boat, and people, they just laugh and they make fun of him. I imagine it was kind of like that for Noah. He's building this, this incredibly huge boat, and it's not raining. It's not raining, you know, we had no rain this summer for, what, a couple of months? 
It's not raining for a couple months. It's not raining for a couple years. It's not raining for a decade and a couple of decades. 120 years go by. The whole time, people are probably thinking that he's crazy. The same way that when you and I share the gospel, we say, you have to be right with God. Because if you die apart from Jesus, then you're going to see God, not as a loving father, but a judge. And, I, you know, that, we're past that. You know, we've we got other stuff that we believe in. We live our lives differently. And they think we're crazy. But like Noah, and in the days of Noah, Jesus says people were just carrying on. They were marrying, having children, going to work, doing their thing. And then the floodwaters came and they were all carried away. Our neighbors, our family, our friends are doing the exact same thing. And you and I need to be faithful to preach the gospel to them. To tell them that judgment is coming, but there is a way of escape. Had any of Noah's friends, I'm sure, before that door was sealed shut, come to him and said, I've wrecked my life. I've got to get in this boat. That's the only chance of being saved. And they would have gone in and been sealed up. They would have been lifted to safety too. Every, you didn't even have to believe the boat might even float. You, know, you could have been like, this is the stupidest looking boat I've ever seen. But when the water started falling and the boat got raised, you got saved anyway. Sometimes we have all kinds of doubts, and sometimes we have all kinds of questions, but God is gracious and merciful, and he saves his people. He has people out there in Park City, I believe. People we need to be praying for. People we need to be pursuing. People we need to be bold in sharing the gospel that there is a way for their sins against the holy God to be forgiven. For them to be at peace with the God who is the judge of all men. See, God will judge sin. Every single act of rebellion and transgression against a holy God is dealt with. You either deal with it on your own, or God deals with it through Jesus. God deals with sin. He doesn't wink at it. Eh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, sweep it under the rug. He deals with sin seriously. And the wrath and the judgment that's stored up is either going to be poured out on you, or it's going to be poured out, or was poured out. On Jesus. So the ark becomes this beautiful picture of salvation. And everybody who's in it is lifted to safety. So if you're in Christ, then you can be at peace. But if you're not in Christ this morning, I'm pleading with you. Repent of your sin and run to Jesus. And find that he is a gracious and merciful Savior. Sufficient for all of your insufficiencies. And cling to to him. Let's pray.